Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Associate Editor Dr. Mario Cazzola discusses the review series on germline predisposition to hematologic malignancies with authors Dr. Lucy Godley, Dr. Anna Brown, and Dr. Dennis Hickstein. I am Mario Cazzola, a professor of hematology at the University of Pavia Medical School, Pavia, Italy. As a blood editor, I coordinated the preparation of a review series on germline predisposition to hematologic malignancies. The cancer predisposition revolution began in 1969 when Lee and Frau Meni described four families characterized by the occurrence of sarcomas in children and cancers of various organs in their parents and relatives. In 1990, two studies reported the germline transmission of a mutant T53 gene in families with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, indicating that the inherited T53 mutation predisposed the members of these families to various malignancies. In uh, the last years, the use of uh, next-generation sequencing has uh, led to the identification of several disorders with germline genetic predisposition to hematologic malignancies. The review series in blood describes uh, the latest advances in our understanding of the following predisposition disorders. Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, a review article written by Christopher Riley and Akiko Shimamura, gut 2 deficiency syndrome by Dennis Hickstein and Cathy Calvo, hereditary platelet disorder associated with germline variants in RANAX1, ETV6, and Ankirin D26 by Claire Homan, Hamish Scott, and Anna Brown, and DDEX41-associated susceptibility to myeloid neoplasm by Hideki Makishima, Terebes Zabauman, and Lucy Godley. Our major goal was to alert scientists and clinicians about the relevance of genetic predisposition because it's not just a rare condition. Lucy Godley, in a recent study, has shown that about 7%, but probably more, of patients with a myelodysplastic syndrome of any age have an inherited predisposition to myeloid malignancies. The condition we included in this review series cover all ages, with Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome being a let's say, predominant in the second and third decade of age, GATA2 deficiency syndrome involving older patients, hereditary platelet disorders being found at any age, and especially DDX41-associated susceptibility to myeloid malignancies 
being a condition without any clinical phenotype, which is, becomes clinically relevant at the time of progression to a myeloid malignancy. I believe that this review series will be very important, especially for clinicians, because as Lucy Godley suggested just since a few years, they should know that any patient with a myeloid malignancy may have a genetic predisposition. So I believe that time has come to consider genetic testing when facing a patient with a myeloid malignancy. I'm Lucy Godley, a physician scientist at the University of Chicago. This review series is of broad interest, as Dr. Cazola described. In the past, we were all taught that inherited risk to hematopoietic malignancies was something extremely rare. Like if you saw one of these families in your whole career as a hematologist, you were lucky. But now we have a different vision of this. We think you are potentially seeing patients with inherited risk every time you have clinic. And this is a real seismic shift in thinking in the field. And so it takes a lot of data to convince people that this is true. And then people need a lot of education. And we are still learning about what all the different genes are, where you can have deleterious variants that give you risk. And so this is an effort to educate our field and each other. Um, and this is an ever-expanding field. That's part of what's um, hard about it is we probably don't know everything right now. And so we're still learning. So this is in the process of re-educating ourselves about this phenomenon. I think every patient I've ever met who has cancer has looked at me and said, why did I get this? So patients wanna know why do they have cancer? And many of them want to know if their families have a similar risk and can anything be done to prevent cancer or at least diagnose it in an earlier stage where it's more treatable potentially. So this question of inherited risk gets at the crux of why people get cancer, in particular hematopoietic malignancies. And by understanding that, hopefully in the future, we can actually prevent people from getting cancer. Right now, I think a very important clinical implications of these diagnoses are twofold. One, does that individual have risk for other types of cancers? Um, does the inherited risk factor that that person have predispose only to hematopoietic malignancy or are other organs at risk and are there preventive strategies for other organs? And then secondly, in the care of that particular individual, we often use hematopoietic stem cell transplantation as a treatment for that person's hematopoietic malignancy. And the preferred donor for that individual is a relative. And so by definition, um, we use family in the treatment. And if you have an inherited risk, the family member is potentially at risk. But I would actually go beyond that. And I would say that some of these variants, and you know, I contributed to the article on DDX41. DDX41 is one of those genes that actually the deleterious variants are so common 
they're out in the general population. Even unrelated donors can have risk. And we have cases where unrelated donors have introduced relatively common deleterious variants. So I'm arguing now that the entire hematopoietic stem cell pool should be considered for inherited risk, not just people who are known to have inherited risk. So I think this phenomenon really challenges the way we practice medicine, the way we practice hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, and really will result in changes how we evaluate patients with heme malignancies and the donor pool. I think DDX41 uh, germline deleterious variants are important and different from some of the other disorders that are described in the review series. First of all, um, we've had this bias in germline genetics that if you have an inherited risk factor, you will present young for your disease. And that is true sometimes, but the corollary to that has been an assumption that if you present with a cancer in an older age range, you don't have an inherited risk. And I think that's really wrong. And DDX41 is the case example of that. So the average age of diagnosis of an individual with a DDX41 inherited mutation is the same as garden variety, acute myeloid leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome. And so we need to think about germline risk for patients of all ages. And as I said before, deleterious DDX41 germline variants can be relatively common in certain populations. And so that means that there are lots of people out there at risk that we're not aware of. And again, it brings this question about the stem cell pool that I think more attention needs to be paid to it. Uh, we also observe that male individuals who have these deleterious variants progress to malignancy more often than females. We don't understand the molecular basis for that observation. And we also see that when the germline DDX41 mutation carriers go to stem cell transplant, even when donors are normal and don't have that mutation, they have severe graft-versus-host disease, life-threatening and sometimes life-ending graft-versus-host disease. But actually, if post-transplant cytoxan is used, that effect is ameliorated. So that means we should be using post-transplant cytoxan for these individuals. So it's important to know who they are when they head to transplant because the type of graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis that should be used is, you know, we have a particular recommendation for those people. So that means we have to move this testing earlier and earlier into the evaluation of the patients. So I think all of those aspects are quite unique about DDX41 mutations. I'm Anna Brown. I'm an Associate Professor at the Centre for Cancer Biology and Essay Pathology. From my perspective, I think this review series is of broad interest because whether or not we are actually doing the screening for this, these individuals with a germline predisposition exist, whether we're paying attention to them or not. And we know from the work of our colleagues in this area now that a significant proportion of these individuals, particularly with myeloid malignancies, will be carrying these deleterious germline variants. In addition to that, with the increased use of somatic NGS tumour panels, they're almost universally applied to people presenting with myeloid malignancy in many clinics. Many of the genes that are on these panels 
are also predisposition genes. And so like it or not, clinicians are going to have to face the challenge of identifying germline variants, whether they're ready or not. So I think this review is our contribution to helping people be ready for that challenge and educating them so that they know what to do. I think this series is relevant for clinical haematology in many ways. One of the things that strikes me is that it will necessitate a a reconsideration of populations with the potential for future planning. So instead of in times past where we were treating people as they presented with a myeloid malignancy, with increasing genetic testing, we're now going to have a population of individuals who are carriers of deleterious germline variants who have not yet developed malignancy. And that is that is a new situation for the community that presents challenges in terms of risk assessment for these individuals at a gene level and at a personalised level but also opportunities for how we can design new interventions to actually hopefully prevent some of these individuals from progressing to a malignancy. Takeaways from this article, when we were considering how to write this article, we were thinking about how we could present um, a topic on hereditary platelet disorders caused by mutations in RUNCS1 and CARD-D26 and ETV6 in a context that would be helpful for readers to apply it to their clinical or scientific situations, particularly readers who might be new to the area. Um, And so presenting contexts historically in terms of the discovery of these disorders phenotypically and genetically over time and how that's changed and how it may continue to change in the future is one way of doing that. Another way of doing that is to think about the patient journey over time as well. So similarly, their phenotypic presentations, their genetic diagnosis, how they might be monitored over time and the approaches for having customised treatment for them should they develop a malignancy. In particular with platelet disorders, while we have focused on three genes that have malignancy predisposition, there are actually a very large number of genes that can present with a similar platelet phenotype. And I think one of the things that our review series highlights is that with the recent developments in genetic testing through next generation sequencing, there is now a way to, with well-designed next generation sequencing gene panels to really shortcut that diagnostic process, essentially providing a single test that can give a diagnosis in a rapid time frame for individuals and cut short the previously long investigation processes. The second takeaway might be that this increased use of genetic screening and our success in identifying germline variants early in carriers uh, is producing an increased population of individuals who are carriers and for whom they have not developed malignancy yet. So I think this gives us opportunities and challenges. At the current stage, we don't really understand how to risk monitor on an individual level how or when we should intervene early, but there are some discoveries such as the identification of somatic variants, in particular in RUNX1 predisposition disorder that looks like a form of what could be early onset clonal hematopoiesis. So while we don't understand that at the current time, it certainly presents an opportunity upon which the community can build. And I think it's important to note that as individually these disorders are rare, 
the best way to move forward and to try and create meaning from some of this information and generate more information upon which we can make clinical decisions and guidelines uh, is to create essentially international cohorts, gene-specific cohorts, uh, so that we can get the numbers that we need for that. And there are initiatives highlighted in our review, particularly for RANX1, which can act as a model and be broadened out to other predisposition disorders. The other thing that is of note with platelet disorders and that the genetics has revealed is that while they may present these three disorders with similar platelet defects at the beginning, genetic profiling in the last few years has very nicely shown us that the genetics of the tumours that develop from these three disorders are very distinct, giving us information we didn't know before. And in fact, the risk of developing a hematological malignancy from these three disorders is very distinct. RUNX1 has a much higher lifetime risk of developing malignancy than ETV6 or ANCAR-D26. And conversely, ANCAR-D26 is much lower. So understanding this kind of information is the beginning of being able to design gene-specific monitoring programs for these individuals. I'm Dennis Hickstein. I'm a physician scientist and a senior investigator at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. I think having been involved in the GATA2 deficiency syndrome for the last since 2009, really, I thought this would be a small number of patients who were sort of in a little niche area in hematology, and it's turned out to be vastly more involved than that. And we, we follow hundreds of patients who harbor GATA2 mutations. We've transplanted over 90 of these patients, so it's certainly a serious disease. And it's just kind of incredible. It's been unrecognized for all low these many years. And even when we started in 2009, it was unrecognized. We just called it a syndrome. They called it monomac for no monocytes and mycobacterium avium complex infections. So it's just an indication of how little we knew at the time. And other groups were recognizing this, calling it lymphedema with monosomy 7 or just deficiency of certain number of dendritic cells, NK and B cells. So these are all syndromes, and it's just been very gratifying how it's all come together since 2011, known as GATA2 deficiency. And, you know, you've gone from an unknown syndrome where you would be very reluctant to use a familial donor, as Dr. Godley alluded to, to now where we can type donors, we know we can use family donors, etc. So it's been I think the main thing is this, this is a lot more common than is, has been previously recognized, and it remains unrecognized. We're always getting new patients who only the DNA sequencing is what tipped people off that it was GATA2 rather than syndrome. The implications clinically are really immense. Frequently, these patients come to transplant either because of their myelodysplastic syndrome, which turns into leukemia or because of really severe life-threatening mycobacterial infections. We now can recognize these patients, we can follow them, we can time the transplant, we can use family donors. So the genetic testing has just opened up all of this um, and it's just provided incredibly unique opportunities. I transplanted a set of identical twins using their same older sister. I've never done that before in 40 years of transplant. I've done a number of father-daughter, father-son, mother-daughter combinations. So they're just unique opportunities, and the disease manifests so differently, even in the same family.
It's been incredibly gratifying for the patients as well as the uh, researchers to have it come to this. The other thing I was going to note that even though the disease was described and identified as GATA2 deficiency in 2011, here we are a decade later and there remain important unanswered questions. I mean, we, we still don't know why some family members remain asymptomatic for their whole lives well, their child need to be transplanted as teenagers. And that's a, a big mystery. We really don't know the second hits that really tip somebody over into manifesting the disease. And there's also the suggestion that Marshall Horowitz in Seattle recognized 25 years ago that there appears to be anticipation in many of these families in that the disease occurs earlier in each generation. And that's primarily seen, first recognized in 1992 with neurologic and neurodegenerative diseases such as Huntington's chorea, where it manifests earlier in each generation. So that's an important unanswered question. And transplant itself, when to transplant these patients, is always a challenging question. You don't want to transplant too early where you may have unexpected adverse events. Or if you wait too long and miss it and they've transformed into leukemia, it's a whole different disease because frequently it's a refractory leukemia. So the timing of transplant, since I'm a transplanter, that's one of the big areas we're focused on. It was a mystery at the beginning when we found the patients and other people found the same thing, mutations on one allele of GATA2. Like why does the loss of one gene, one copy of a gene manifest disease? So, you know, the whole concept of haploinsufficiency that dose of these transcription factors is very important. And so that was a concept that I did bring up. And so I think it perplexed us at the beginning, but we've now, I think, are more comfortable that that's what's going on. The issues I alluded to, the unanswered questions. So there's plenty of work to do for uh, young researchers who want to get involved in these type of inherited predisposition to myeloid malignancies. We haven't solved all the problems. Anna. Thrombocytopenia is quite common as a hematologic disorder. Would you consider germline testing for RANX1 or ETV6 or Ankirin D26 in patients whose thrombocytopenia is not so clear with regard to pathogenesis? Uh, so consideration of testing in individuals where the thrombocytopenia is not so clear, is that what you're asking? So where they may have platelets in the normal range? Maybe a mild cytopenia, which is not clearly autoimmune. or Yeah, and I would say somebody who doesn't respond to typical immunosuppression. Um, so these are, you know, refractory ITP. It's a very good question as to how like phenotypes can guide or enrich populations that may benefit from genetic testing versus a universal genetic testing strategy that might be applicable in some cases. I think some of the recent thrombogenomic studies looking at broader predisposition panels definitely could show that in a fairly broad platelet disorder population, the pickup rate is quite low, around you know less than 5%. But then if they added other platelet defects into the phenotype, they could increase the rate of identification of variants quite markedly up to more like 40%. So I think it's a very good question as to where you sit on that spectrum of picking the population of patients that you screen. Lucille, 
your suggestion to consider germline testing in any potential stem cell donor is very provocative. <laughs> Do you think it's feasible? Yes, I am trying to be a little provocative to the field so that we move forward. And yes, I do think that doing germline predisposition testing on patients heading to transplant and on their potential donors is feasible, but it will require a large shift in how we all conduct the evaluation of patients and their donors. Here, we try to consider germline testing for all patients diagnosed with a hematopoietic malignancy based on their personal history, the molecular profiling data that we have from their malignant cells and from their family histories. And for patients with myeloid malignancies, by the time they get to transplant, 95% of them that quote unquote should have had germline testing have had it. So we're able to benefit from that at the time of donor evaluation but I am now very cautious about the unrelated donor pool, knowing how common DDX41 and CHECK2 deleterious variants are. I also think the transplantation right now probably is not conducted with enough, I would say, disclosure to individuals. When they donate, for example, after stem cell transplantation, many Patients are having molecular profiling when their donor chimerism is quite high. And so this is how we're picking up these variants from the donor, because you're actually doing molecular testing on the donor. In general, we don't have the proper disclosure to the donor and consenting to allow the disclosure of that information to the recipients. So I think there's a lot of improvement that we can do, not just in terms of the diagnostic testing itself, but also in the counseling and advising of people heading into transplant, either as recipients or as donors. So yes, I do think that we need to change a lot of how we do things, but our observation of the DDX41 and the severe graft-versus-host disease and also the observation that donor-derived leukemias in some cases come from unrecognized deleterious variants in the donors make me convinced that some of the poor outcomes of allogeneic stem cell transplant are due to inherited predisposition either in the patients or the donors or both. And so I actually think that if we increase our detection of germline predisposition, we will improve outcomes. Now that's an idea, a theory that I have, it still awaits testing, but I think the hints are there that some of the poor outcomes of transplant are due to these disorders. Yes, I think we can do better on many levels and that's our purpose, right? Is to always try to do better medicine for our patients. Denise? Lucy has underlined that uh, post-transplant cyclophosphamide is uh, particularly useful in patients uh, with DDX41 associated susceptibility to myeloid malignancies. If I remember correctly, in your article in the British Journal of Hematology on uh, transplantation in patients with GATA2 deficiency, you found uh, a similar observation, correct? Yes. 
So the use of post-transplant cyclophosphamide is a relative, in bone marrow transplant, is a relatively new phenomenon. Ephraim Fuchs at Johns Hopkins developed that about 15 years ago. And although there was a long history going back to 1987 with Robert Good using it in mice, um, but it's really been the big train coming down the track in transplants. It started in haploidentical transplants, and it was very effective at preventing graft-versus-host disease in that setting. And now it's been expanded into match-related and unrelated donor. And it's really cut the incidence of acute graft-versus-host disease from the 40 to 50% range to the 10% range. So, I mean, really a you know, proverbial game changer that way. So he deserves a lot of credit, uh, Dr. Fuchs, for discovering that. Because it was sort of counterintuitive to give chemotherapy post-transplant. Lucy suggests that uh, DDX41 mutation can create a pro-inflammatory milieu. And that's uh, the reason why post-transplant cyclophosphamide is particularly useful. Lucy, do you agree? Yes, I think... Uh, many of these germline predisposition disorders have a common theme of increased inflammation, whether that's inherent to the germline disorder, like DDX41, as a helicase important in RNA processing, or, for example, as Dr. Hickstein mentioned, the germline GATA2 patients have immunosuppression and they are susceptible to many different kinds of infections. So the inflammation can be exogenous, if you will. It can be associated with infection. It may also be inherent to those GATA2 deficient stem cells. We think that something similar is going on with germline RUNCS1. So an increased inflammatory milieu may be a common node, if you will, that promotes the growth and expansion of mutated hematopoietic stem cells. So it may be a factor that is contributing to the progression toward malignancy. Um, again, that's a hypothesis based on, you know, threads of data that are out in the literature, but I think more people are coming to this idea. Um, and hopefully this will allow us to think of strategies to intervene and slow that process down. Could I make one comment about something? that Lucy's uh, stimulated me to think about several things, but one of them I would just say in analyzing these type of patients, you need to think broadly because we've seen many mutations outside of the coding sequence of the gene. They're actually in enhancer regions, which are really the thermostat that turn on genes and they can be somewhat subtle. So we need to think broadly. If you really think it's GATA2, you probably need to be sequencing the enhancer regions which can be located at some distance from the gene. Uh, along those same lines, to expand on what Dr. Hickstein is saying, uh, we also have many families with multiple germline predisposition variants. So they don't just have germline DDX41. They have DDX41 and BRCA1 mutation, or DDX41 and APC. Or I know Dr. Brown and her colleagues have individuals with germline RUNX1 and other conditions. And, you know, many of our colleagues, as they're doing broad testing, actually find that many families have multiple risk factors for cancer. So it argues, again, for very broad testing, making sure that testing platforms are comprehensive for the types of mutations that occur 
in all the regions of the gene that matter. So promoters like for ANCAR-D26, enhancers for AGATA2, and probably for all of these genes. Uh, many of the platforms are not sensitive for finding copy number variants or deletions, which are relatively common germline predisposition alleles. So I do worry that many patients are getting incomplete testing. I could just pick up on that theme to say it's very important if you're looking at donors for transplant, a family donor, you do not want to use somebody who also carries the GATA2 mutation. Uh, we did a search for a young woman several years ago, an unrelated donor search, and the best donor in the unrelated donor registry was herself. So she was in the registry. And there have been other families we've published. This is before GATA2 was identified, where a younger brother was used as a donor for his two sisters. And then they both died of leukemia. And then 10 years later, he developed leukemia himself and turned out to be GATA2 positive. So you don't want that to happen going forward. I want to thank you, all the authors, for the excellent review articles and uh, invite uh, blood readers uh, to read them and uh, to learn a lot about clinical practice for the future. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.